Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, we place ourselves in your presence. We first raise our voices to you in gratitude for the many blessings you have showered upon us, natural and supernatural, especially in this holy season for new life in you, risen life, and the calling to ever keep our hearts and minds on things that are above. Help us to follow you, Lord, in this risen life. Please bless us this evening. Open our hearts and minds to the wisdom that you would share with us through St. Thomas Aquinas. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom, St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our guardian angels. Pray for us. That's right. All right. Well, what a delight. To be back, I was worried as I was. I was driving in. Did it? Did it? Did you have a big storm here about half an hour ago? Because I, I did, and I did in Front Royal. I hope I didn't bring it with me. Um, um, well, I am. First of all, there's a handout. Has um, is that kind of making its way around? I, I've given them all to somebody, so I don't have any more right on hand. It's not. It's not mission critical. So um, those, those who are here uh, for the first time, let me just bring you a, a quick up-to-date on, on where we are. Um, so we have a four-part series, a four-part series in introducing you. Is that, is that okay? Am I, still, am I still mic'd? It doesn't sound like I am. Is that? I okay, I think the mic just went off. So I'll just keep talking. Do you want, I'm good. Okay, so I'm going to keep talking, and then if you can't hear, tell me. Um, Four-part series in introducing you to reading the Summa of Theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. What we did last week was fundamentally introduce you, us, ourselves, to uh, who is St. Thomas Aquinas and what was the context in which he was writing. And then we've set the next three, the second, third, and fourth of our four times together to look at the three parts of the Summa. So the three main parts of this probably greatest work on theology perhaps ever written, of course, other than God's holy word. Um, the prima pars, the first part, the second part, and the third part. So today we're going to be looking at the first part together. I'm going to give a couple uh, more introductory thoughts, just practical things about reading the Summa. But for next time then, we are reading the second part, and then following time, the third part. I'm going to tell you right now um, what your assignment is. And, and again, just so everybody understands, you don't have to do the assignment. 
um, my students at the college technically have to, and some of them still don't. But, <laughs> but in any case, um, you, I think, will get more out of it. You will enjoy it more, though I will try my best to have it be intelligible to you, even if you have not had occasion to do so. Today, I assigned question 12, Article 1, and then question 91, Article 3. And here is, is your assignment. So each time I, I think I'm going to do two articles. In the, in the second part, um, in fact, I'm going to walk over here and first of all show you a little bit about the notation of the three parts of the Summa. And I'll try to stand so that everybody can see. We use Roman numerals to uh, indicate the three parts, but the most confusing is this. In the second part, there are two parts of the second part. So you will never just see a Roman numeral 2 because there's no such thing as just the second part. In the second part, there are two parts. So you have the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part. <laughs> All right? So, so here, anytime you're going to see a reference to the Summa, the first thing that has to be given before the question number is the part number. But it almost seems as though there's four, well, because in a sense, in a sense there are. And uh, I mean, if, if I had been doing it, I, I almost don't want to write it to confuse you. I probably would have done something like this. Second part and the first part of it, and the second part, the second part of it. But let me get rid of that right away, because that's not how it's done. There is no such thing as Roman numeral 2 dash Roman numeral 1. So again, the way that we say this is, First part, first part of the second part, second part of the second part, and third part, all right? And that's sometimes will be said in Latin, the prima pars, the prima secundae, first of the seconds, the secunda secundae, second of the second, and the tertia, the third part. So what, right now, I'm going to tell you what you're, well, let me tell you further about the notation. If the full notation would normally be something like this. What you, the first thing that I was assigned you today to read is the first part, question 12, article 1. So when, when you, that right there is a main way that you would indicate precisely the article. Anytime you're reading something in the Summa, you're going to be reading an article. The, que the parts are divided into questions. The questions are divided into articles. So if you're given an assignment of a particular article, it's always going to have to tell you all three of those things. I can't just say prima pars, article one. That would mean nothing. That could be 100 different things, because there's over 100 questions, and everyone has a first article. If I just said prima pars, question 12, then you'd have to assume I want you to read all the articles of it, but that is, I wouldn't do that to you, and that's, that's, that would be too much. All right, so now when it's done without letters in it, I act, it, it's done like this. So that's the way it is in my notes. Just so you know, if sometimes you'll come upon this in a footnote, and it's, it just, it's nice, so this is an introduction. I want you to understand if you see a footnote at times to the Summa, that you'd be able to recognize this. Again, Roman numeral is going to give you the part. Almost always will be a Roman numeral. And then, and then what do you call that kind of numeral? As an Arabic numeral. Um, and then if there's a period, that means then that you're going on from the question to now the article. This, of course, is the same as that. All right, and our other one for today is question 93, article 1. 
So now our assignment for next time, one of the articles is from the Prima Secundae and the other is from the Secunda Secundae. And so I'm going to write down your assignment right now. for next time. And the first thing I want you to read is in the first part of the second part, question 2, article 8. And the other article that I want you to read is in the second part of the second part, and it is question 104, article 3. Now every now and then, uh, I make a mistake in saying what number the article is, because maybe I look at the top of the page and it's actually saying it's the one that the end of which is on that page as opposed to the one that begins on that page. So I always like to give the title of the article also so that you know what it is. And the title of this one right here is Whether Any Created Good Constitutes Man's Happiness. Whether Any Created Good Constitutes Man's Happiness is this one. And the second one is whether obedience is the greatest of virtues. That's what this one is right here, whether obedience is the greatest of virtues. Very quick primer here now on reading an article. Every article will begin with objections, followed by the part that is called on the contrary, followed by the part that is called the body or response. And I'll try to move so that everyone can see this. See this. And then finally, replies to objections. I know this isn't terribly exciting. We'll get into the meaty, wonderful stuff here in a moment. So any, any article. The article is posed as a question. Note how both of the ones that I just gave you began with a weather, weather such and such, weather such and such. So th there will be some questions. So question two, article eight, ask the question. We talked last time, ladies and gentlemen, about the scholastic method of disputation and how the summa itself is, as it were, a recording of how that disputation worked. And those of you here last week recall that we talked about how the disputation was the fruit of many generations of working together as an intellectual community to try to determine what was the best way to reach the truth together and to continue to move that project forward. So the great method of disputation that was often done publicly and also done then semi-privately in classrooms. And there would be a master in charge, a question would be posed, and then we talked about the first step of that is before going to the master's own answer to the question, he would always first give the objections against the position that he was going to do. Right, and we talked last time about how this has many great aspects to it. There's an aspect of humility there. There's an aspect of honesty there. There's an aspect of just we are really going to look at every aspect of this and first make a great case against what our own position is. And that is listed first in this objection one, objection two, objection three. In the summa, he tries to keep it brief. There's normally two, three, or four objections. In his more developed works, there'll be 15 or 20. All right. Then the on the contrary is a very neat thing. I don't know if I meant, I don't think I mentioned this last time. Before he goes to give his own answer, he then will quote 
an authority that agrees with his own position. And, and I think one way we can have insight into that is it, it's not as though no thinker can ever have a new insight, but the thought is, in general, these truths have been seen, and we are learning from those who have gone before us. So rather than having it seem as though we are now going to give our own new answer to this, we begin by saying, here's an authority who answers this question the same way I'm going to. And it's done very briefly. And that's what the on the contrary. So it's called on the contrary because it is against the objections. That's the beginning of his answer, though he's doing it through the thought of an authority. Then you have the famous, in Latin, it begins, respondeo. I answer that. In Latin, of course, you know that we get the English word response from that. It is also called, in Latin, the corpus or the body of the article. This is where the main reasoning is given. It's where the master's thought is most of all presented. Then again, finally, in, in view of the master's response in the body, then he will go through each of the objections and say why, in view of what he has said here and the authority who agrees with him, we can now give a reply to the objections. So one thing that you might want to do, this was suggested to me when I first started to read the Summa, there's nothing wrong, you're not cheating, if you want to just read the question and then just straight, jump straight to the body. Because it often, often the objections are a little bit more remote. And, and particularly since we are not familiar with the thought processes that we're going on, they can be confusing to us. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But just I'd say, in, in general, uh, introductory, don't worry so much about the objections and replies to objections. Sometimes they're more important than others. Now, in the one that I signed you for today that I'm excited to get to about whether the human body is fittingly disposed or aptly disposed in creation, several of the replies to the objections are actually really exciting particular points, and we're going to look at that together. Uh, in, in, any quick questions on the structure and reading that at, at this moment? That might be dangerous. Maybe we'll leave it at that. And, and um, um, did, did other magisters uh, like Thomas uh, develop, like, for example, Peter Lombard? Or oh, absolutely. This was a well. This is a well. I will indeed. The, the question was, did other, other masters at the time, or prior to the time, and after the time, uh, follow the same system? Absolutely. It was, it was already well developed. St. Thomas is considered to be particularly outstanding at it. But this, this was standard. All right. Um, if you would, take a look at your handout. If you don't, I'm just gonna, I, will, um, I will just read it out loud. Um, Take this also as a reference to a book that I think that you'd particularly uh, appreciate by Jean-Pierre Torel. He is a Dominican, I believe he's still alive, I believe he's not Swiss, but French. They don't like to be confused, but I believe he's a French Dominican who is teaching in Fribourg. And he is considered the expert on St. Thomas's life, and St. Thomas is a spiritual master. A fabulous two-volume series available from CUA Press. And here he makes a great comment on the structure of the Summa. I'm going to read the first quotation here together. Instead of proposing a simple series of questions to be followed without close links to one another, 
St. Thomas, offers a synthesis that already generates knowledge by its very emphasis on interconnections and internal coherence. The great originality of the Summa lies not in its content. To a very large degree, Thomas is happy to reproduce Christian teaching, and his dependence on numerous philosophers and theologians show as much. But in its organization, and then make sure we understood that sentence because there was a large interlude there, the great originality of the Summa lies not in its content but in its organization. Now note, when he says there an organization, it doesn't mean structure in the sense of following this structure, which had been done, but in the masterful way that he weaves together the three parts and the questions that are dealt with within there. It's going to be a little bit frustrating for us. It, it, it would be very difficult for me to try to, to demonstrate that to you, just how much interior coherence there is. There's not a good way to make that clear without doing more than we're going to do, but I want to just present to you, bear in mind this is one of the most exciting things about jumping into reading the Summa, is you are entering in to one of those great works that is a masterpiece beyond most of our comprehension, where you can have confidence that the more you study it, the more you will have those moments of, ah, now I see how these things fit together and how it truly is giving a view of the whole. And right now I want to do a little bit to try to make that clear by telling you one of the main themes that is seen in the structure and simply the division into the three parts that we have already talked about. But let's look at the other quotation, if you would, on the handout. For here, this is actually from, now this is a little bit different. If you look be below the quotation, I give you the notation. ST, of course, is always summa theologiae. And then there's the Roman numeral. You see that's first part. Question two, dot P-R-O-L. Now that's something unusual. That means there's a prologue. Some questions that were more important, he'd put a little prologue before the first article begins. So two dot prologue means before article one of question two, there's a little prologue. And he's always did that for the sake of organization to tell you now what was coming. Look what, had it, what he has to say here. This is where he is setting up the structure of the whole. Because the chief aim of sacred doctrine, that is his name for the science of revealed theology. Sacred doctrine is what you and I normally call sacred theology. Because the chief aim of sacred doctrine is to teach the knowledge of God, not only as he is in himself, but also as he is the beginning of things and their last end, and especially the last end of rational creatures, as is clear from what has been already said. Therefore, in our endeavor to expound this science, we shall treat. Now here, he tells you right at the very, very beginning, so question one of the Summa, ladies and gentlemen, just set up, sacred doctrine is a science. 
just a quick side point for those of you here for last week. Remember how we said one of the key things St. Thomas needed to do was show how Aristotle could be reconciled with sacred theology? Quick side point. One of the key aspects of Aristotle's worldview was the understanding of science. In the, in the strong sense of that term, an ordered body of necessary knowledge. Any knowledge that was worth its salt, in Aristotle's understanding, would be called a science. So a great, and there was a specific understanding of that, an ordered body of necessary knowledge. Now, I'm not going to go into any depth, but a great question arose. Can you call revealed theology, sacred doctrine, a science? Can you call it, in Aristotle's sense, a science? And most people did not see how those two were going to be able to come together. And that's the masterpiece of the very first question of this master work. St. Thomas says, here's Aristotle's understanding of science. And I'm now going to make clear to you how not only does sacred theology fit the definition of a science, an ordered body of necessary knowledge, indeed it is the most perfect kind of science that there can be. That's the burden of question one. Having done that, then in the prologue to question two, he, 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 he opens up the whole panorama before you which is what we're reading out loud right now. I go back to it. We will treat one of God. So that's first part. Our topic for today is God. Two, of the rational creatures advanced towards God. That's the second part, both the first part of the second part and the second part of the second part, or that. And third, of Christ, who as man is our way to God. So let's just look, look for, for just a moment at the, at the big picture here and how exciting this is. He'll end up making a, a clearer as he proceeds here that, in fact, in the first part, not only is he going to treat of God, but he was, he's also going to treat of creatures as proceeding from him. Then, and I'm just going to write both of these, meaning in the, in the second part here. The return of the rational creatures to where they came from. And then the third part is the way of the return. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the big picture. St. Thomas is going to lay out for us who slash what is God, and how have things come forth from him? And go through the basic divisions of the different kinds of creatures, always focusing on rational creatures. And we'll talk more shortly about how central it is, how in an appropriate and beautiful way, how absolutely rationally centered is his understanding of the cosmos. Rational creatures are at the center of understanding that which has come forth from God. And so, having looked at God and creatures as proceeding from Him, and just so you know, the second part is far and away the largest part. Indeed, the second part of the second part is larger than any of the other individual ones. So, he's going to be particularly interested in this issue of 
the return of rational creatures to God, but then this whole final one, Christ, as human, in other words, God as having become man, is the way without which the great drama of the return of the rational creature, whence it came, could never succeed. One way that St. Thomas's worldview is very much expressed here is these two Latin words are often used in connection to the setup of the Summa. So if you ever hear these two Latin words will often be thrown together. Exitus, reditus. Exitus, obviously, from which we get the word exit, means the going forth. And reditus means the return. And so at the center of, you can say, St. Thomas's understanding of everything around us is the foundational viewpoint from which to understand things in our experience is given in these two words, which are the principle of this whole setup. And you, you get some little glimpse here into what Father Terrell meant when he said the very structure itself is going to be very revelatory of St. Thomas's genius. And particularly this insight that at root the whole issue is things have come forth from God. You cannot possibly expect to understand yourself or anything else in the created world unless we understand ourselves, them, precisely as creatures of that. That is the first and unchanging reality which needs to be understood to the extent that we can as the basis for having some conception of who we are. We in our fundamental identity are something that have come forth warm from the hands of what has been looked at here at the beginning of the first part. And, and we might say the incredible drama of existence, much greater than any, any other drama. I don't know if anybody here is fans of Tolkien the way that, the way that I am. And the, you know, the trilogy of Tolkien is just is, is truly a great drama. If you haven't actually read the books, I really, it, I really, really uh, recommend the books. They are better than the movie. Um, I don't want to start an argument about, uh, about that at the moment. But the, there's such drama in Tolkien's trilogy, and it absolutely pales in comparison to the drama that is reality of this first cause that freely decided in his perfection to send things forth. But he has sent them forth in a very specific and highly ordered way so that they have a map and a plan for the return, but are free in whether they do so or not. 
And the whole drama is, will they, as it were, follow the plan that has been written into them in how they have come forth? For it's all about returning once we have come. There's the big picture. Let's look a little bit at the overview now of the first part. And then what we'll do is we'll turn to our two articles for today. All right? So having given you a sense of the big flow, we now want to look, in, and, and I'm just going to kind of give a hint of what goes on in looking at the first part. And then I've chosen these two articles as giving us some flavor, I hope, for the meat that is therein. If you go back to our quotation that was in the middle of our page, after the one, two, three, and he's always, he's in, if, if you have an ordered mind that loves lists and the subparts of the list and following them neatly, St. Thomas is your man. <laughs> For after giving you the one, two, three of the entire Summa, he's now going to say, all right, now we're starting part one, and here's the one, two, three of part one. And uh, he... he, he he loves, he loves threes. He has, you know, threes just kind of seem, the reality is just kind of calling for threes. <laughs> In treating of God, prima pars, there'll be a threefold division. For we shall consider whatever concerns the divine essence. Two, whatever concerns the distinctions of persons. And three, whatever concerns the procession of creatures from him. And that's why you see I put God and creatures as proceeding from him. So just a quick word on the division then in his treatment of God. Beginning with the divine essence. Beginning with what we can say about, as it were, the nature of God. Do you see what the distinction is between the divine essence and the divine persons? There's one divine essence there are, of course, three divine persons. So what he begins with is, what can we say about the nature of God? And so what he's doing in that section is things like, first of all, proving God's existence and doing that through natural reason, and then doing things like saying, can we say that God is one? Can we say that God is infinite? Then can we say that God is good? Can we say that God is all perfect? Can we say that God is knowing? Can we say that God is loving? These are things that pertain to, quote, the essence of God. Then what he's going to do is go on and look at the distinction of persons. Just a quick note here. He seamlessly and beautifully uses philosophy. It's, it, it's, done, it's done so seamlessly, you can often be confused when you're reading St. Thomas Aquinas. Is, 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 this, is this philosophy? Is this something he got from Aristotle? Is this revealed theology? Is this something we only know because God's revealed it in, in divine revelation and scripture? He is always using that great tool called philosophy, which prior to divine revelation was the height of pursuing wisdom. Right? Wis philosophy is the pursuit of wisdom according to the lights of natural reason. That's what the great philosophers of the ancient world St. Thomas's great teachers had done. They had come to the existence of God. They had come to a number of God's attributes. One of the beautiful dramas behind this that St. Thomas doesn't necessarily make absolutely explicit 
is we are in the amazing position of being able to know in our faith that this God who has all these amazing attributes that the philosophers are able to see, in fact, has done something that the philosophers never could have known. Namely, he has spoken to us. Even before he became man, he has spoken to us in the Old Testament. And then, of course, in the absolute culmination of divine revelation, he becomes man and speaks to us, as it were, with his own lips, or, as it were, with our lips. But there we have a whole set of truths then that were not available to the philosophers, and the main example of that at the heart of our faith is the mystery of the Trinity. And Saint, a, a good part there of that early part of the Summa, after the part where he treats the divine essence, is going through the three persons, how we name them, etc. That is very difficult, and we are not going to look at that together. <laughs> All right. Um, one of the really neat things is this aspect of how God has set it up so that we can see that he exists by our own natural reason. St. Thomas loves, and it's constantly coming through, how grace is a perfection of nature. God has given us the natural endowment to be able to come to realize that he's there and that would he only speak, then we could come to see so much more about him. So you see, even in the structure as he's proceeding there, the beautiful principle that is at the heart of his theology, that grace always perfects nature. Grace always perfects nature. So we see how the great principles of the Trinity are a perfection of what the philosophers had seen. Now, I particularly like this point. One thing that philosophers were able to see is that at the root of everything is this first being that they could see was all perfect. It had all perfection in it. Now, doesn't that demand the following amazing question, even just philosophically? If there is a being that has absolutely all perfection, and literally, its happiness and perfection can not be added to. It's very important that we understand that. The best of philosophers, Aristotle was able to see that. This being is so wonderful, is so perfect, its perfection cannot be added to. It demands the question, right at the heart of this whole thing, why? Why would that, would he create? I invite you, ladies and gentlemen, to wonder about that, for it is literally a wonderful question. And to move too quickly to just say, oh, well, that's because... I, I, I tremble to say we've, we've missed the point. I just, I invite you again. Some, sometimes we think that theology is all, is everything tied up in neat little boxes. 
things are tied up wonderfully, but within them things are bursting out like this. Why would that being create? And here is a point where I, I dare say philosophy would already suggests the answer. It suggests the answer. Generosity. But, but, but it's hard for it to cross that threshold, and historically, very few cross that threshold to be able to see that that perfect being created out of generosity or love. But here's the thing. Perfect instance of where, again, divine revelation, what God in his wisdom saved to make most clear to us by telling us with his own lips, as opposed to teaching us through nature. He has shown us something that fits perfectly with philosophy, but by taking it further, it is because though you cannot and never will fully understand this, it is a completely generous act of love. And I, I, and he, I hesitate in saying it because we, we've heard it so many times. I invite you with St. Thomas to look anew, and I invite you to look at your handout, where I did not assign this question, but I put this on your handout for you, for I want you to see this. Quotation from Prima Pars, question 44, article 4. The question of that article is whether God is the final cause of all things. Final cause there means end. This is what he says in part. It's the main part. Some things, however, remember this is intelligible as we can for you. Some things, however, are both agent and patient at the same time. Listen, gentlemen, agent simply means that which is acting. Patient means not patient in the sense of the virtue of patience, patient in the sense it comes from passion, which means to be affected. Agent is something acting, patient is something being affected. Some things are both agent and patient at the same time. Watch, quick example. When I'm loving somebody, I am doing something, I'm an agent, but also something is happening to me as I love. Right? I'm growing as I love someone else. I'm acting towards them, but I'm also, you could say, receiving something because by my loving, I'm becoming more than I was before. If I'm becoming more than I was before, that means something's happening to me. See what I mean by agent and patient? Sometimes the terminology seems to be, oh, but, but it's, it's actually rather straightforward. So, some things, however, both agent and patient at the same time. These are imperfect agents. And to these it belongs to intend, even while acting, the acquisition of something. But it does not belong to the first agent, who is agent only. You understand that there's a lot packed into that. He's agent only. What's implied by that? If you're agent only, that means when he acts, nothing in him is changing. Nothing in him is growing or becoming more or becoming fulfilled, for he's just agent and in no way patient. 
he cannot become more than he already is. But it does not belong to the first agent, who is agent only, to act for the acquisition of some end. Already right there, very much wraps up why you you, want to pace back and forth and say, now this is strange, this is really weird. Something that can't gain something by acting on something outside of itself then why would there possibly be a reason for it to do so? I bring you back to that same issue. I go on. A line that now, I'm going to read it, sounds so dry. But ladies and gentlemen, I present for your consideration, this is the foundation of everything. He intends only, only, to communicate his perfection. Communicate means share. He intends only to bring about the state of affairs where something else, someone else, can, to some extent, be as happy as he is. And that's the only thing he's intending to bring about. which is his goodness. He is going to act not first anything he'd gain, but so that something else can be like him. While every creature intends to acquire its own perfection, which is the likeness of the divine perfection and goodness. Therefore, the divine goodness is the end of all things. I go on, you see this right, that notation reply to the objection one. In this case, we don't have to go back and read the objection, but his reply to it is extremely helpful. I read. To act from need belongs only to an imperfect agent, which by its nature is both agent and patient. You you able to follow that now? Again, is agent and patient. In your need, neediness, as you are acting, say in loving someone else, as our example, you are becoming something more, which you need. There is no way around that. That doesn't mean this is a selfish, unselfish love. You are still gaining something. But this does not belong to God. Therefore, he alone is the most perfectly liberal giver because he does not act for his own profit, but only for his own goodness in the sense of sharing it. I'd like to think if we begin to understand that point, it would change everything in our worldview. It implies, ladies and gentlemen, and we need to go on to the articles that you read for today, it implies that philosophically, theologically speaking, creation is nothing more or less than God's loving us into existence. The definition of love is to will the good of another. Creation, properly speaking, is an act of God's will, willing good to another. Remember, metaphysically, he cannot gain any good himself. The good he wills to another is his own good, which he shares. And so it is not 
poetic. It is not wishful thinking to say that right now we are held in existence by the perfect unselfish love, period. Let's take a look at these two uh, articles that I assigned for today. Whether any created intellect can see the essence of God. Overall here, what he's doing is explaining that it must be possible for the human intellect to see God. One of the incredibly exciting things here is, is just... It, the, the whole thing reads like a fairy tale. The, these, these, these little creatures with these incredibly limited intellects, which by our mode of knowing, it's extremely difficult for us to think about and understand higher things. St. Thomas is highly rare. Remember last time we talked about what a good teacher is? St. Thomas, in his wisdom, is highly aware of how weak we are as knowers. And he particularly is good at getting inside our worldview. And again, that's why he's such a good teacher. And he reasonably has a sense of people might well think it wouldn't be possible to have a vision of God as he is in himself. Now, here's one where he absolutely has to transcend his teacher, Aristotle, his teacher, a millennium before, and more, because Aristotle absolutely would have answered this question, no. But one of the tricky things is, this is another beautiful instance of where we see how theology, how grace is the perfect completion and perfection of nature, Following Aristotle's principles, what he basically lays out here is the human intellect is designed to know, to know causes. And when we come upon anything, we want ultimately to get to the root of it. And so if we are able to come to see that God exists, we could not rest until we really were able to see him. I mean... I mean, imagine if we have any comprehension of this wonderful point we've just said of something, better to say someone, has made the effort, as it were, to love us into existence, who's literally holding me, this microphone, this tie, in being because he loves me, could I ever be satisfied if I don't know who, who he is? Who is behind this anyway? It's not human to be satisfied short of coming to see that. But what would Aristotle have done with that? Aristotle didn't know what to do with that. Aristotle liked to say things like this. Well, 
I, paraphrasing, I'm happy I know as much as I can of God, for even the little I know of him is much better than the lot I know of lower things. I give you, that's nobility. But he had, he had short of grace, there is no way to come to see the essence of God. But here, St. Thomas just lays forth, of course we have to be able to see the essence of God, and this is absolutely a part of our faith, so we know that it must be the case. God did not give us a desire that would only come to rest if we see him as he is, and so it must be the case that we will see him as he is, and yea, indeed, he promises that to us in Scripture. Boom. So, yes, will any created intellect see the essence of God? It can. Doesn't mean that everyone will, but we are invited to. I'm going to leave that one at that, and and, and go on to our go on to our other one. I uh, and maybe in the question and answer we can come back to that a little bit. I I hope you'll forgive me if our treatment of it is is cursory. I only chose two articles, and even our, our treatment of those two is cursory. That's. Um, He has gone through God's essence, the, the persons in the Trinity. He has gone through creation, why God has created, for instance, in question 44, which I just quoted to you then. Then what he does is he goes to the creation of the angels. I just throw at you, the section on the angels is astounding. It is clearly a man who talks to them. He, he, his nickname is the Angelic Doctor. We're leaving that all behind and coming right to then the treatise on the creation of human nature. I've chosen a very homey little one, just a, just a, just a neat little blip in the middle of everything that asks this very simple question. Is the body of man, and by man he means the human body, making no distinction at this point between man and woman, was the body of man given an apt disposition? Ladies and gentlemen, the body, pardon the double meaning there, the body of the article here is a masterpiece of seeing St. Thomas. I particularly chose this one because it's a classic instance of his opening with a few key principles and then him letting you see how they unfold. And frankly, what's more important is the, is the opening principles. I love his particular application, but watch the opening principles. I'm going to read out loud. If you're able to bring your own copies of this, it's great, and if not, that's not a problem. This is how he begins to answer the question whether the human body, when he says, is, was it given an apt disposition, what he just means basically is this. Is this the best way for a human body to look, to be, to be arranged? Isn't it a great question? Those, those of us who are in the Sophia Symposium, we've looked at this a little bit, and I hope you appreciated this, this text takes it, um, takes it deeper here. Watch how he opens this. I answer that. Respond to you. Oh, wait. I got to remember how I said the on the contrary will, um, <laughs> will quote an authority. This is a great authority. On the contrary, it is written, God made man right. <laughs> How's that for an authority? Ecclesiastes. God made man right. 
I mean, you almost think, was that a joke that St. Thomas quoted? But it's, it's, I mean, he's completely serious. Of course the body is exactly what God wanted it to be because God made man right. So, he's, so he, it's almost like a, a, a child with a toy. Let's see how, just how right it is. Well, let's start with the principles. I answer that all natural, all natural things were produced by the divine art and so may be called God's works of art. Come back to that in a second. Watch what he's going to do with this. Now, every artist intends to give his work the best disposition. <coughs> Ladies and gentlemen, here is how St. Thomas sees the world around us. And I ask you, which, I could do this a number of ways, which even do you think is the most plausible as you look at the world around you? I challenge you, we live in an age where modern science has made great advances. Never question that. But we've got a very big problem. Is it not the case that by and large, the way that modern science has formed how we look, when we look at a tree, do we see what is there? Do we see what St. Thomas sees? Is he being unrealistic, or I suggest to you, does he have the highest viewpoint, the truest viewpoint, not just the, oh, that's pious, the truest viewpoint? What's a tree? Is it anything other than the fruit of an astounding artist. And we have been taught to think that millions of years of random interactions bring about, for God's sake, trees. I couldn't possibly be more serious of how important it is when we look at things that we see them for what they are. Is he being hyper-pious when he calls God an artist who has crafted it? And real craftsmen are extremely careful and are always thinking about the end for which they're making this. And is not everything around us crafted that way? Doesn't it look like this is the fruit of someone who acted out of complete generosity and outdid himself in designing it? There are dogs that are so amazing, they can give new life to a human being who's blind. Was that because of random chance interactions over millions of years? So when he looks at anything that exists around him and he wants to understand it, he goes to what is 
first about it? Well, we want to understand the human body. Clearly, this is something that was designed, that was ordered for an extremely specific purpose. So, n n n note the great, I say, the, the great principle that he's shown us that he'll now quickly, we'll have to quickly, he doesn't do it quickly, apply to the human body. But do you see how th that just that opening line, I don't care about the whole rest of the article if we could just appreciate those two opening lines. All natural things were produced by the divine art and so may be called God's works of art. Now every artist intends to give his work the best disposition. Now watch this. He takes it further. This might have been confusing to you when you read it or maybe it's confusing to you now. Not absolutely the best, but the best as regards the proposed end. And even if, right off the bat, you're not sure what that means. He clarifies it. I think, I think you'll see this. Even if this entails some defects, the artist cares not. Thus, for instance, when man makes himself a saw for the purpose of cutting, he makes it of iron, which is suitable for the object in view. He does not prefer to make it of glass, though this be a more beautiful material, because this very beauty would be an obstacle to the end he has in view. Therefore, God gave to each natural being the best disposition, not absolutely so, but in view of its proper end. In other words, Every single part is made best so that it will fit with everything else. It's not each one is the best, period, but the whole thing is best because each thing has been perfectly designed to be right where it's supposed to be. So you, you see how he has set up things like, well, well, if he made it best, why can't human beings fly? I mean, he, he asks that, right? This, this makes perfect sense. He handles that very well. If the human body were able to fly, ladies and gentlemen, it would not be able to do many of the other much more important things that it does. So God didn't make it fly because that would have been shortchanging us. Birds, very happily, are designed to fly, but it makes them not be able to do much else. <laughs> which is, such as walk, <laughs> which actually is better when you think about it. You wouldn't want to fly holding wings with your beloved. You really wouldn't. All right, we're, we're, we're running short on time here. The, you, you, see, you, see the, you see the fundamental point? I'm going to go, go one more specific principle, look quickly at an example, and then we're going to have to shut down. Next paragraph begins, now the proximate end. This actually is absolutely central to understanding who we are as humans, and that's particularly why I wanted to see it here. Note how he gives a general principle to approach everything in the natural world as God's artifacts, God as the artist, ordering all things. Now we have the proximate end of the human body is the rational soul in its operations. Since matter is for the sake of form, that's something he lifts right out of Aristotle. I mean, at, at the greatest theological moments, he just bloop, takes something straight out of Aristotle. Since matter is for the sake of form, the proximate end of the human body is the rational soul 
All right, so, so, so bottom line, we want to understand the ordering of this body. I like to put it this way. This body, the human body, not mine, well, ours, is perfectly designed to serve the rational, communal life of man. The human body is perfectly designed to serve the rational and communal life of man. And if you look particularly at the replies to the objections, is where he goes through and he makes very specific arguments. I just will end by calling your attention to the reply to the third objection on the upright stature of man. Anyone who's interested in this, I highly recommend a book that is in print right now by a man named Leon Cass, K-A-S-S, Leon Cass. And the name of the book is The Hungry Soul. The Hungry Soul, and there's several chapters in there that are absolutely beautiful in um, expounding this point here. And Cass is particularly excellent at showing how man's body is absolutely unique in the, in the animal world. There is no other animal that is upright in stature whose body is obviously designed fundamentally for seeing, the three things that are emphasized here, all in this reply to the third objection, which I quickly just note, we are obviously designed for seeing, for speaking, and for being able to use our hands in creative ways. No other animal is designed so as to be able to speak. Part of the reason that whales communicate with those strange sounds, well, part of the reason, <laughs> Their bodies are not designed with the subtlety and the sensitivity of our lips, which as he goes into in a very simple way here, where we prostrate, you couldn't have a face like this, you couldn't have lips like this. I mean, it's just very simple thing that's just true. Some of the things he says is an outdated biology, but the fundamental structure of it is, is, is spot on. We have to be upright in order to have the sensitivity and the freedom of the lips that we have to be able to speak which he calls the work of reason. So we have speech, we have these hands that are able to be these great tools, and we have our vision, unlike that of any other animals, able to take in the whole. And I conclude by saying this to you, we might have been tempted to think, we might lose ourselves for a moment and almost come back to the modern viewpoint. We might have been tempted to say, oh, whew, that was a close one. We, we might have been like one of those other animals and not had those aspects. No, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't a close one. It wasn't a close one at all. Our God is not a God of accidents. Our God is a God of wisdom and love that orders all things for the best. Always. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Kedeback. Um, so we're going to take a quick, short break, and then we'll come back for Q&A. Think about your questions now. And thank you so much, Dr. Kedeback, and thank you all for coming. God bless you.
could you give just a little bit more background on how this volume all came together? Did he just eight years later bring out out of a dark room a volume and set it on the table? Was uh, St. Albert with him the whole time? Did he have focus groups and bounce some of this stuff <laughs> off other people? And did he have any? Did he have any challengers? Was anybody during the time of the writing pushing him to challenge him with another uh, theory or thought? That's that, that is a great. That's a great question. I, I am particularly going to um, refer you to the first volume of Father Terrell. Um, uh, on St. Thomas. Uh, again, the second one is called Spiritual Master. I think the first one is called The Person and His Work. And uh, it has long been uh, an object of study as to just when he wrote the different parts. So the fundamental answer is it happened over many years. So he had, he had conceived the great master work but continued to work on it and during different assignments over the course of a very long time. And indeed, the tertiary parts is unfinished. So he, he had been working on it for many years, um, and there is even a scholarship that points out about how his thought developed while he was writing it, and some of the things towards the end he at times treats just a shade differently than things he had treated towards the beginning. It was in constant dialogue, um, so I would say his, he was having arguments in this time. For instance, there's a very famous, uh, last week we mentioned Christian Averroists. There's a very famous Christian Averroist who's named Siger of Brabant, which he had a very uh, well-known public disagreement with. And so he would be he would be interacting with other major thinkers of the time, uh, you know, sharpening his thought against them, and that was all going on over the years. So I think there there I, I think what you probably were suspecting behind your good question is true. It was not off somewhere. It was in the context of ongoing teaching, ongoing interaction with, uh, with uh, scholars such as himself. Doctor, would you please explain a little briefly reply to objection two from article one? The meaning, uh, question 12, article one? Is that it, the, the first the one? The first was, one. The first one that was assigned. Whether any um, created intellect can see the essence of God. And I don't think that's a short answer. Yeah, that, that might be a little bit tricky. And the problem is, you know, I, I, I don't want to disappoint you, but I don't have these things memorized. Um, um, w w w I, w did you say the reply to the second objection? Yes. Quick comment. The infinity of matter is not made perfect by form is unknown in itself because all knowledge comes from the form, whereas the infinity of the form not limited by matter is in itself supremely known. God is infinite in this way. Um, you have to understand infinite without and in the, in the realm of the material was seen to be an imperfection, whereas in the realm of the immaterial it is a perfection. And that is the main thing that he's concerned to say, that in something in the... In, there's a great controversy, is there such thing as an actually infinite number? So infinity in general in the material realm, if you're talking about quantities, is, would not be, it would not be something that would be better to be infinite when you're talking about the material quantity. So, this is, so what he particularly wants to be doing is pointing out, when you ask, is God infinite? 
the point is not that this is talking about something that has to do with size. Here, God's infinity is one of no limitation whatsoever. And so this is partially parsed out as a difference between infinity in the spiritual versus infinity in matter. That's fundamentally what's going on there. We could talk a little bit more about that afterwards. Actually, before we go to Henry, um, two quick questions. Kathleen, who I forget where she is, but she, she had a question that I had, which was, where can I find Aristotle's quotation, the quotation that you said about um, he's happy to know a little about God and more? It's, you, in, it's in his work. Where is that? Can, in, can we get a reference if you don't have the exact Yeah, quote? I don't have the exact. It's, it's okay. in his work called The Parts of Animals which I know is one that sounds like it would keep you up late at night. Um, <laughs> but um, I, 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 I have to, um, I, I have to. Are he, you he able to find that for us? He, I, I can, absolutely. I can get great. it for you for next week. It, 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 great reminder, Aristotle was a great biologist. And, and so he was concerned with trees and birdies and such. But and then also Joshua in Maryland asks, and you can table this because this potentially is a long question, but maybe you can get into it in the next few talks. If Aristotle was an Athenian who believed in a pantheon of gods, how could he also hold that God was one? How did St. Thomas deal with this? Um, the, the answer, it's a great question. It's, it's fundamentally straightforward. He, he, he doesn't hold that there are many gods in the properly divine sense. And so that that I, mean, I know that was the common that was a common view in in Athens, but I would say there, um, I mean, there could be different approaches there. Might there be a sense that there could be something angelic going on there with some of the with the other uh, beings that are referred to as gods? But at the end of the day, I'd say uh, Aristotle was rather clear that there is there is one God and anything else is not divine in the proper sense, but there could be higher beings. It is important that Aristotle does hold that there are what he calls separate substances, or he also calls intelligences, which St. Thomas just says what he's talking about are angels. So there's my short answer. So for those of us that don't have uh, time this summer to read all 6,000 pages of the Summa, mm -hmm. which version of the condensed or summarized uh, versions of the Summa would you recommend that, that capture the real essence of it and leave out the... Hmm. Uh, the Ab absolutely great, reasonable question. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to give me till next time to think about that. Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't really had occasion to look at them because by the, the blessing of my uh, condition in life is that I actually have the opportunity to not read 6,000 pages. I haven't read as much as I should have, but that I, I don't spend much time looking in them. So um, I, I might still come back to you and say, I'd rather, given what we've done here, I might rather have you still put your attention in reading the thing itself rather than summaries of it. But let me think, let me think about that. Thank you so much, all Dr. Right. Thank you. Thank you. I'll see you all next week. Safe travels home. God bless you all. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org 
or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.